Secrets of your man's mind revealed. As if men's mind were that complex. Uh, secrets of an organized mom. Surprising secrets of happy couples. The true secret of writing. The secret code of success. Presentation secrets of Steve Jobs. Three secrets to effective time investment. And then, of course, there's just the secret. There's secrets. Those are just uh, a sampling of just those self-help books with the word secret in them. Just hardcover. Just hardcover. Over 600 other titles. You can go through, find, a, find keys to happiness, the, the keys to a happy life, or, or insights. All of these uh, there, there seems to be a big market out there for people who want to find out some kind of secret, some, time, some kind of key, some kind of hidden insight. That, that, that there's some, be some kind of idea that there's something out there that if I can just get my hands on it, if I can just figure it out, then all of a sudden everything will just, everything will just be made right. Uh, the man and the woman's first sin was based on a desire to know something that was, they, they thought was something that was secret. Some, uh, something that, some, some insight that they was being held back from them. God had something behind his back that he was keeping from them. And uh, they, uh, they sensed, they were deceived into thinking that they needed to know that. They needed to know that. But what I hope that you'll realize today is that God holds nothing back from us. God is merciful and gracious. And life is not found in finding out what is behind God's back. Life is found in obeying and believing God's word. Let's turn your Bibles to Genesis 3. Genesis 3. What I want you to see first is deception and disobedience. Deception and disobedience. And disobedience. Genesis 3. Deception and disobedience. This is what it says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And Genesis 3 doesn't tell us where the serpent came from. Uh, The Bible's pretty clear that the the power behind the serpent is Satan himself. Uh, We get some sideways glances into the origin of sin, the origin of evil, what... How Satan fell. We gotta get some sideways glances in the Bible about some of those things, but Genesis three does not uh, does not just come out right out and tell us where Satan came from. 
doesn't tell us how he came. What we do know about Satan is that he is a creature under the power of God and that his destiny is destruction. Uh, nothing is outside of the power of God, including Satan himself. Uh, there is nothing that happens, good or bad, that is outside of God's power. Uh, we know... Uh, we know that God is never pictured as the author of sin or evil in any way. Uh, and everything that Satan intends for evil, God intends for our good and for his glory. But we don't know exactly why God planned out things the way that he has. We don't know why he allowed or permitted or ordained uh, the existence of sin or evil. We only know that he is not the author of it. And that's not a satisfactory answer for a lot of people. Why, why did God allow it? But this is a passage about not wanting to be like God. Not wanting to pursue what only God knows. So we simply trust that God does all things for good. That God does uh, in all things that he does both positively and all things that he permits. He does good. And he does what is right. So here we have Satan speaking through a serpent. And the serpent here is pictured as more crafty than any other beast of the field. Uh, the idea of craftiness there, that's not a, it's not necessarily a bad word. But what has happened here is that the one who was originally made good, the one who was probably originally made wise and beautiful, Satan himself. His wisdom has been corrupted so that he is now using his wisdom, his craftiness to corrupt others. And so he comes to the woman. It's not so much about who Satan is as it is what about Satan says. What Satan says. He says to the woman, he begins to question what God says. He says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What, is, what does Satan go after when he is trying to deceive people into sin? He goes after God's word. He tries to distort God's word. He tries to twist God's word. And listen to what listen to the, what the what the woman says. You can even see there that, that Satan is already not only challenging God's word, but also seeming to imply that God is in some way not good. In some way that somehow God has said, "Hey, you can look at all this stuff, but you can't touch it." And the woman begins to fall for that. You see in the next verse there, she says, "We may eat of the trees in the garden, but the tree, uh, but you, sh but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die." Uh, look, look back in uh, chapter two, verses sixteen and seventeen, and just see if you can pick out the things that she leaves out and the things that she adds. She says, and the Lord God, this is what God said to them in verses 16. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. She leaves out some important adverbs there, right? Freely. We may eat freely of any tree in the garden. God gave us everything. There, is, there has never been a good reason to sin against God. When God created the world, when he has given all things to mankind, he said, eat anything you want. He put mankind, he put the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden where everything was perfect, everything was good, and says, eat freely, eat to your heart's content. There's no shame. Everything is perfect. She leaves that part out. Uh, 
she leaves out the part about surely you will die. It's an important adverb, isn't it? Important little word. You know, the idea here is not that it's wrong to uh, paraphrase God's word, uh, but she is materially changing God's word. Lest you die. Leaves out the idea of, of this, the sureness of God's judgment. And then she says, uh, and we should not even touch it. Maybe it's a good idea not to touch the tree that God told you not to touch from, but that's not what God said. That seems to imply God's, God held this back from us. God's, God's holding something good back from us. This sort of, this sort of trail that, that, that Satan got her off on. She's, she's just going right into it. She's falling right for it. And then Satan himself comes out and just outright contradicts God's word. He says, you will not surely die. When Satan wants to deceive people, to lead them into sin, what's one of the doctrines that he attacks? The doctrine of God's sure judgment. A lot of people comfort themselves, comfort themselves in their sin, in their in their unrighteousness, in their, in their rebellion against the Lord by saying, there, there's no judgment. It's not coming. Even though over and over again in Scripture, God shows that he will judge unrighteousness. He will judge sin. We like to put that off in the future. I like to say, hey, hey well, that, that's not really going to happen. It's not really going to happen. God, listen, it's been a long time since God said that Jesus would come back. Where's he at? What did we learn from 2 Peter 2? Do not think that God is slow to carry out his word. Do not count slowness the way uh, that with, with God, a thousand years is like a day. He's coming back and he's going to judge. And then he says, God knows, God, God knows he's been keeping something back from you. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What does he hold out to her? Take this and you can be God. You can determine the rules for yourself. You can determine, you can live by your word, not by God's word. You know, we need to be aware. 2 Corinthians uh, 2 tells us to be aware of the designs of Satan. The older translation is the devices of Satan. You know, this is the way that God, this is the way that Satan works. How does, how does Satan get people to sin? He deceives them. He deceives them. He is the father of lies. And I think lots of times, I, I, over and over again, I, I, I taught this passage in a lot of different situations and people will say uh, over and over again they I, I don't know I don't know what they think but they seem to think hey if I'd been in that situation I wouldn't have done that <laughs> if if I, I would have recognized hey I, I, I we don't need to eat this I, I would have I would have known better you realize that Eve and Adam here are the, the first man and the first woman they are untainted by sin Number one, they're way more intelligent than you are. Way more intelligent than, than any of us have been. They are untainted by corrupt desires. If, if anybody was going to resist, it was going to be Adam and Eve. 
when they sinned, it is a picture of what every single one of us would have done as our representative uh, of all humanity, Adam. Adam pictures for us exactly what we would have done there. And, and lots of times we will see people in all kinds of sins. I want you to think of what, what is the sin that you think that you absolutely could not possibly do. What it, think, think of that. Get that in your mind. I could never do that. And what do we think when we see somebody who is doing that? We think, I could never do that. I can't believe that they're doing that. I can't believe that they are sitting in that way. I could never be deceived that way. If you think that you could never be deceived, too late. You already are. You are already deceived. The only thing that keeps you from sinning in the same way that you self-righteously judge others for sinning is the grace of God. We we'll don't look here and think, hey, I, you know, I would have been, been really smart there and not done that. This is the way that Satan has fooled all of us. If you've sinned, you've given in to these very same ideas. That God's word, we don't, have to, we don't have to listen to that. There's no judgment. God's not good. If God were good, he wouldn't be holding this back from me. God's got something out there. But this is what happens when we sin. After, the, after this conversation, things happen really fast. In verse, uh, verse 6, it says, The woman saw that the tree was good for food, but that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desired to make one wise. That's the whole idea of it. It looks good. Uh, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to feel good. Uh, and and there's, some, there's some new insight there. There's something, there's something I'm going to experience there that I cannot experience any other way. Now, I want to experience what is, what is behind door number three, the one that God is keeping closed. I want to experience that because, because that's, where, that's where goodness is. That's where joy is. And it says she looked at all that and she took it and she ate. And then, and then she took some of it and gave it to her husband who was with her. When you read that, if you can kind of read that in a fresh way, you just kind of want to go, what? That the man was the one that, the, that God had spoken to himself. Man was the one who had, who had been given the task of guarding the guardian. You know what the man's supposed to do when talking snakes come into the garden? Chop its head off. Rebuke it. In the name of God, say exactly what God said. We're not going to eat that because God said we died. And he's just sitting there listening. I want you to think about how everything is flipped upside down here. God is supposed to be ruler over all things. Ruler over the man and the woman. Uh, the man is supposed to have authority over the woman. Uh, the man and the woman are supposed to have authority over creation. And everything's flipped upside down. The woman is listening to part of creation the man is listening to his wife instead of leading her. And nobody is listening to God. You know, the, the creation order that is flipped upside down here? You know, that's one of the reasons why in, in 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 15, uh, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man because Adam was formed first. And Eve was the one deceived. The woman was the one deceived. He's not saying there that women are more gullible than men. He's saying, hey, we already know what happens 
when the creation order gets flipped upside down. We know that when the created order is flipped upside down, that the whole world was taken into corruption. The whole world was brought down. So we need to preserve that. And that very same passage that, that I just talked about from 1 Timothy 2, those are God's words too. You think God's words aren't clear? Is there anything unclear about verse 17? But of the tree of 217, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Is there anything unclear about that? Is there anything to be distorted about that? Anything, anything not, anything that, that, that a simple, rational person, basic, simple, common sense, can't read that and understand what God's word is saying. The problem is not uh, over and over again that there's the same type of attack on God's word, the same distortion of God's word, the same, the same illusion of maybe God's word doesn't really say this, it says this. We're, let's not give in to Satan. Let's not give in to lies about God's word. This is, this is, this is history. This is about why uh, the world, how the world went wrong. But this is also a picture of us, of, of every time that we sin, how we fall into sin, and how we can overcome sin. With God's word, by believing God's truth. Gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And then verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves one cloth. Here's a shocker. Satan lied. Do you realize that sin makes promises to you? Sin, sin makes promises to you that if you, if, you, if you do this, then you will be happy. This is something that is being held back from you. If, if you go and you take it, you will be happy. That's what Satan promised them. That's what sin promises each of us. Guess what? Those who, in the Garden of Eden, they were naked and unashamed. They did not know what it felt like to be ashamed. Would you like to be... Well, one of the things I think that all people can, can feel is the fear of exposure. They don't want to be exposed. They did not fear that. They did not fear that. Instead, they, were, they, they had this unbroken relationship with one another and with God. And here, the result of sin, this, the result of believing the promises of sin, the lies of sin, is that they are naked and they are shamed. What, what they, they are brought out into the open. They are humiliated. They are exposed. They are shamed. And, think, and then they try and cover themselves with fig leaves. Try and cover up their shame. With their own man-made ideas. They, they, they some way think, think, I can cover up my shame. You know what? You don't, you, have to, you don't really have to explain to somebody that they're supposed to be ashamed. You know, I think it's, I think it's good. 
uh, to, to try to bring people's sin to light. We see Jesus doing that, say, with the woman at the well. It's not, it's not the idea that we shouldn't uh, talk about sin or, or try and expose sin. Uh, but we're, when we're exposing sin, we're not exposing something that people don't already know. We're bringing to the surface something that they do know. That sin brings about shame. In the moment that they sinned, they realized. They experienced death and shame. We experience the same thing. And it cannot be covered up by our own self-justifications. It cannot be covered up by our own deeds. It cannot be covered up by the lies that we tell ourselves. Our consciences witness against us that we have sinned against the Lord Almighty. And so our only course of action is to not turn away from God the way that they did or to believe sin's promises the way that they did, but to turn back to the Lord and to believe God's word and to find life. So we see the deception and disobedience there. Now I want you to see the, the curses and the consolations. Curses and consolations. Pick up at verse 8. Curses and consolations. This is what it says. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the man, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Uh, as soon as the, uh, that day, in the very same place where they had had fellowship with God before, in the Garden of Eden, this kind of garden sanctuary, this meeting place between God and man, the man and the woman hear God coming. They hear God moving in the garden, this place where they had, they had fellowship with him before. They had nothing but, but an open relationship with him. They had had no shame. In that very same place, they hear God coming, and so they hide. And who does God call for? Does he call for the woman, who is the one who was deceived? No, he calls for the man, the one who was supposed to be the one guarding the garden, the one who had been given the task of leadership there, the one who had been given the, the, the authority over the garden. This is, this is your place. You guard it, you work it, you take care of it. 
And he says, where are you? God is not ignorant of what they have done or where they are. God is bringing out into the light their sin. He is bringing from them a confession of sin. And the man says, when I heard you coming, I I was afraid and I hid. I hid. And then God says, did you eat of the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? What does the man do? Does he he admit it? He says, he says, the woman that you gave to me gave me the fruit and I ate. He blames the woman. What's more, he blames God. Earlier he had said, earlier he said, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And now he says, the woman you gave me, the woman you brought to me. The woman, the woman that you had, you had made for me from my side, she is your fault, God. It's your fault. Then in the end, he has to admit, and this is what all people have to admit when they are brought before God, that they, have, that they ate. He says, I ate. No one can deny before God that they have sinned against God, that they have disobeyed what was plain to them, what God made plain to them that they ought to do. They disobeyed. Well, then God says, what is this to the woman? What is this that you have done? Who told you that you were naked? Uh, what, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. She blames the serpent. And God, God doesn't even, he doesn't question, he doesn't interrogate the serpent, he doesn't interrogate the snake. Instead, he goes straight to the snake and he curses the snake. Verse 14 says, the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, cursed above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Here's, here's the one who is craftier than all the beasts of the field and now he is cursed above all the livestock. Cursed above all the beasts of the field. There is a sense in which uh, the, the snake is a symbol of, of this uncleanness that God created. This uncleanness that sin brings. This, this, he is going to eat dust. Dust is later on going to be associated with death. He is going to eat death for the rest of his days. In utter humiliation. He brought the man and the woman into shame. You are going to be shamed. It's going to be humiliated. There's this symbol of of everything that was was good in the beginning is now going to be at the bottom. It's not just about snakes though, right? Verse 15 makes it it clear that there there is someone or something sinister behind the serpent. Verse 15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. There is going to be this irreconcilable hostility between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of the woman. There is always going to be hostility. It's never going to be taken away. There's never going to be comfort. In one sense, this is always God's people versus those who oppose God. So, for instance, the very next chapter is Cain and Abel. 1 John 3 tells us that Cain was of the evil one and murdered his righteous brother. There's always, this, there's always this combat. There is, never this, there, there is no way that God's people ever make peace with the world. Never. 
There is never a time in which God's people make peace with the, with the system of corruption that is in the world that is a product of sin. There is no peace that can ever happen between God's people and those who oppose God. In other places, we see like John 8, we see that God calls those who oppose him. Uh, Jesus calls those who oppose him. He calls them the sons of the devil, the offspring of Satan. In uh, Romans 16, God says, Paul writes that God will take Satan and he will put them under the, the feet of believers. So there is, no, there is no peace between God's people and those who oppose God. There is no peace between God's people and the worldly system that is opposed to God. But then it's not just about group against group. The last part of verse 15, he shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. There's a mano a mano kind of fight. It's going to happen. There's going to be the offspring of the woman against Satan himself. And he will crush Satan. There's a lot of mystery here that God doesn't tell Adam and Eve everything. He doesn't tell the man and the woman everything. He doesn't explain to them uh, all of what's going to happen in the future. But he gives them this consolation. There is going to come one. There's going to come an offspring from the woman who is going to crush Satan. We now know who that is. We know that it's Jesus Christ. We know that it's Jesus Christ through his death. He took away the sting of death. He took the penalty of sin upon himself and he destroyed it. And by rising from the dead, he overcame Satan himself. He crushed Satan. He crushed sin and death and Satan. All of that is taken away because of Jesus Christ. God here is making that promise. God here is making that, that assurance that there, there, is going to, uh, there is going to come one who is going to save the world. He is going to save you from sin. And our response is simply to trust in the one that God is bringing. You know, this is a very dark passage. There is no way to really put a positive spin uh, on Genesis 3. I mean, there's just, uh, I, I mean, the overall... The overall feeling of it is, is just this dread, this darkness, this, this, this hurt, this, this pain of living in a world that has fallen, of the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And yet God is pointing to a time in which he will send one who will make it the way that it's supposed to be. He will restore it to the way that it's supposed to be. There's no way that we can go back to the garden. But there is a hope that we can go forward to. It is the hope that Jesus Christ will one day make all things right. He will make all things right. Then the man, uh, then God speaks to the woman. He says to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. To the woman, he takes that, that part of a woman's life that is unique to her. That is a central part to her life that is childbearing. And he says, I am now going to multiply the pain of childbearing. It's, it's as if to say, by making this one thing painful, I'm going to make your whole life painful. From now on, life is going to be painful for you. But then even in that, there's hope. A little bit, a little bit of a consolation, a little bit of comfort from God. You are going to have offspring. 
You know, if the offspring is going to crush the, the serpent's head, there has to be offspring. I'm going to give them to you. I'm going to give them to you. And then, she, then, then God says, your desire is going to be for your husband, uh, but he's going to rule over you. Those words are only used uh, in, in that kind of way in one other place. That's in uh, Genesis 4, 7, where God is speaking to Cain. And he says, uh, sin's desire is, to, is for you. But you must rule over it. That is, the desire of sin was to master Cain, to over, overcome Cain. But he must conquer it. He must overrule it. The idea here is that, that now there was, this, there was this harmony between man and woman. There was this harmony between uh, the man leading and the woman helping, the, the man leading and the woman following. There was this, there was this harmony. There was this, there was this one flesh union, this, this perfection that God had created. That's not, going to be, that's not going to be the way it is anymore. Now, the, the temptation for every woman is going to be to overcome and to, to take control of, in, either in, a, in a, an overt, controlling kind of way or a manipulative kind of way, to take control of her husband. But then the man is going to rule over her. And the, the implication here is he's going to rule over her in a harsh way. To do it in a dominating way. In Colossians 3, uh, 18 and 19, Paul says to wives, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, do not be harsh with your wives. Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. You think Paul just pulls that out of thin air? He's simply going back here and saying and and applying Genesis 3. And, And I think there's some hope here even for us is that even though we live in a world that has been pulled down by sin and has, there's a lot of pain in the world because of sin this is, this is not necessarily our destiny that is we are, there are gender specific ways that we are going to be tempted wives are going to be tempted to try to overwhelm and have authority over their husbands and husbands are going to be tempted to be harsh with their wives but by God's spirit God is renewing us every day from the inside out he is he is changing our hearts all the time by his spirit his word so that there is there is the power by God's spirit to obey what Paul says that wives can submit to their husbands and, why, and, and husbands can love their wives and, and, and not be harsh with them in a way that is not harsh or, or commanding or, or condemning or dominating or harmful. And I think when I, when I look at the world, I know that there is the, the general idea of the world is that what we really need to do is make men's and women's roles interchangeable and that will make everything right. And all that I see when I look at the world is I see women who are continually trying to dominate and yet they are being taken advantage of by men. I mean, is it, aren't women being taken advantage of in their, isn't that what domestic violence is about? About men treating women harshly? Isn't that what uh, lustful images are about, about uh, men objectifying women and using women. Aren't women being used in our society? The answer, the answer to 
the problems in our society is not that we need to make men and women interchangeable. The answer is to go back to God's intention from the beginning. And I feel like, uh, uh, you know, I, I, one of the things that I really hate when pastors do is that when pastors have hobby horses, that they continually uh, kind of bring up these things that are really important to them and, and sort of impose them on the text. I, I've just been shocked, not shocked, but surprised at how I just couldn't avoid it in looking at Genesis 2 and 3. You just can't avoid the fact that at the center, at the, at, at the very place where the world was brought into corruption, there is, this, there is this problem of man relating to creation, men and women relating to one another, and people relating to God's word. You can't escape that. And they're, they're, all, they're all entangled with one another. So that to lose God's word, you basically lose the harmony of God's creation. I'm not, I'm not trying to belabor this point. I'm not. I want us to live in a way that will honor God. And man, I, I think this is the way to live a wise and joyful life in God's presence. Not by trying to get rid of this. Trying to live consistently with it. So in the same way that God, God focused on what was, what was, what was sort of this, this symbol and this, this, this central part of a woman's life, the pain and childbearing. And now he switches to the man. He's going to point to that thing which is central in his life. That is his, his job was to tend, to cultivate, to care, take care of the garden and to guard it. And now God says to him, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the, the ground because of you. In pain shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man was given the command. The man was supposed to guard the garden. And now his work is cursed. He says, I commanded you not to eat of it. There is this curious, curious passage. Uh, this is just something that occurred to me. I wasn't even going to include it, but I think I'm going to include it. Numbers 30. Go read Numbers 30 sometime. You ever read Numbers? You ever reading some of those passages and you just think, what is that really about? Numbers 30 is about vows. It's about a vow. If a man makes a vow, he has to keep it. But then there's this, there's this long section about, about if, a, if a daughter makes a vow and her father hears about it, he can keep her from making a foolish, foolish vow. He can sort of cancel it out. Uh, and then if a wife makes a foolish vow and her husband hears about it, he can, he can kind of cancel it out. It's curious that Romans 5 says, uh, not that we're in Eve, we're in Adam. Adam. Adam was supposed to be the one taking care. You want to fix a home? You want to fix a household? Fix the husband. 
Fix the father. Fix, fix the head. Sorry, it's just a curious thing to me. <laughs> curious thing there. And God says, cursed is the ground. He, he didn't curse the man. He didn't curse the woman. Certainly they are under the curse of sin. Uh, we know that Jesus Christ takes the curse of their sin. But the only one that he specifically curses is the serpent. And he curses the ground. And now all, all Adam and Eve had to do in the Garden of Eden was this, this garden. What, what the ground produced just automatically was fruit trees. Fruit trees sprang up from the ground. All they had to do was take care of it. All they had to do was, was go and take what, what was theirs. But now that is not the way it's going to be. You know what the ground's going to produce now? Thorns and thistles. You know what you're going to eat? The plants of the field. I, I'm not, a, I'm not a, an expert on, on botany or, or, or uh, any of those other words that I can't call to mind right now. You know, the plants... Uh, plants, horticulture, that's a horticulturist, you know, the, the people who, who cultivate things. I, but I did hear this one thing, I thought it was really interesting, that, that the corn that we associate with, uh, with Mexico, corn tortillas, you know, that, that was something that was cultivated over a long period of time to get corn. Originally, it was just like one of those grains of the field with that little, I mean, it doesn't look like anything that you would eat. You know what basically he's pointing to here is you're not going to grab, you're not, you're not going to just grab fruit off a tree anymore. It's not just going to spring up for you. You know what's going to spring up from the ground for you? Thorns and thistles. You know how you're going to eat? You're going to have to go out there and you're going to cultivate it. You know, those, those cereal grains that we tend to live off of, he says you're going to have to go out there and you're going to have to work your tail off to get food to come up out of the ground. You're going to have to cultivate it. You're going to have to work for it. You're going to, you're going to, have, to, you're going to have to sow it. You're going to have to harvest it. You're going to have to sit there and just hope that it rains so that you can eat. So that you can eat bread. So you can grind it up and you can make bread out of it. That's what work's going to be. It was, it was childbearing for the woman. It's going to become painful. You know what's work? You know what's painful for you now? Work is painful for you now. You're going to eat by the sweat of your brow. There's a little bit of consolation there. As long as you live, you're going to eat. But as long as you live, you're going to work. You're going to work. By the sweat of your brow, you're going to work and work and work to eat. For the bare essentials. And then he says, you're going to work that ground until you go back to it. Because that's what you were taken from. You're going to work until you die. And they didn't die in that moment when they ate the fruit, but it was a certainty that they would. There's, there's just so much pain in Genesis 3. This is what sin brings. This is what disobedience to God's word brings. It brings pain. This is why the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Because of sin. Brings pain. But the overall idea of these verses that just kind of sums it up is the idea there is, is God is going to preserve life. There's going to be offspring and they're going to eat. And they're going to be all, there's going to be offspring and there's going to be eating long enough 
for the offspring to come. God, God is merciful. God is gracious. You know, one of the things, if you want to compare our, uh, where we are as human beings, you know, compare it with Satan himself. There's no hint that Satan has an opportunity for redemption. Or any of his demons, any of those who rebelled against God. And you know what? God doesn't owe redemption to anybody. God doesn't owe salvation to anyone. God does not, God does not owe. God doesn't owe these things to Adam and Eve. He gives them of his grace, of his mercy. Of his own mercy, of his, of his steadfast love, of his, of his faithfulness. He says, I'm going to keep the world going until there can be one to come and save the world. And we see even more of God's favor there. Verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Life is going to go on. She's, uh, what a great thing to be able to name your wife, you know. And, and that is a sign of his authority, the same way that he uh, named things and God named things, a sign of his authority over her, but it's also a sign of his uh, graciousness to her and his love for his wife. Life is going to continue. It's also a sign of even his response, uh, a kind of uh, a simple picture of his faith that what God said to the woman, that's going to happen. And then God himself, God himself, though, takes those fig leaves away because those aren't going to work. And he kills an animal. And he takes the skin of those animals and covers them. You know, the picture here, there are these pictures here. It, they're, they're shrouded in mystery here in Genesis 3. And I have all of the clarity that later on the scripture is going to give us about what all this means. But we have this picture of there's going to come a savior. And salvation comes by sacrifice. Shame is covered by sacrifice. Jesus Christ came and died. For our sins. And a lot of times we wonder about how, how Old Testament saints, how were they saved? They only saw a shadow of what we now have the substance of. We know what Jesus Christ did. And yet, as long as they are believing in these promises that are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, they're saved in the same way, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. We're trusting in Him. Uh, and then, finally, we see banishment. Verses 23 through 24 says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the, God, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The one who was once supposed to guard the garden is now guarded from the garden. Strange twist of faith. Strange twist. And God says... I cannot allow man to go and eat from the tree of life. Uh, I think the idea here is something like if he eats of the tree of life, he's basically stuck here. God has already, God has already given these implicit promises that I'm going to keep life going until there's a time in which redemption can, can come, that the Redeemer can come, 
that Jesus Christ can come. But if he eats of the tree of life now, that opportunity can't come. He'll be stuck. He'll be stuck in this state of sin and corruption that he cannot escape from. So I have to keep him out. He has to be banished. And to be banished from the Garden of Eden is to be banished from the presence of God, is to be banished from life and blessing. To live in God's place under God's rule is to live with life and to live with blessing. And now he is, he is banished from there. And we can't go back there. Well, as I was thinking about this, especially this time of year when we think about uh, Easter in just a couple weeks. Matthew 27. When Jesus dies. There is this, there is this huge thick curtain. That separates what's called in the temple. That separates the most holy place from everything else. And it's a symbol that says you can't come near God. You can't come to where God is. You know there's the picture right here in the garden. You can't come into where God is. You can't come in here. You have sinned. You're outside. When Jesus Christ died, that huge, thick curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. You know what that says to us? It says that through the death of Jesus Christ for our sins, we can go back to God. We can go back to God. We've been banished, but we can go back. Let's trust in Jesus Christ. Let's be faithful to his word. Let's not heed the promises of sin, but let's turn back to the God who rewards those who seek after him and trust in Jesus.